We are in the book of Hebrews today, but we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit. Um, so uh, be on the ready. As we close out 2019, we've been taking a short break from the book of Ecclesiastes, which we've been preaching through verse by verse, so that we can focus on this New Testament letter to the Hebrews, which teaches us that Jesus is so much greater than anything that came before him or anything that could ever come behind. Especially as the Christmas season is upon us, we've been blessed to see Jesus more clearly as greater than the angels. When we think about the heavenly hosts that announced the arrival of this king and how they worshipped this little one that was born in Bethlehem, Jesus is greater than the angels. He is greater than any high priest that has ever ministered to the things of God in the temple or the tabernacle. He is the mediator of a better covenant, as Paul preached last week. And today we will come to see Jesus as the greater sacrifice. Now some might find it a little surprising to hear a sermon that has to do with the death of Jesus at a time of year when we're traditionally focused on his birth. But you really cannot appreciate the birth of God's Son unless you realize that he came here and took on a human nature because he had a very critical mission to accomplish. Jesus was born so that he might die. The time that Jesus spent here with us, he lived for the express purpose of being able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners like us. And there is no better gift that he could have possibly given. What exactly is a sacrifice, particularly in the context of the Bible narrative? That is our, our title for the sermon today, that Jesus is the greater sacrifice. What kind of a sacrifice are we talking about here? There are three key facets of this word that we're going to need to grasp as we think about Jesus and the role that he played as the greater sacrifice. The proper payment for a debt owed is called a sacrifice. When you owe a debt, when there is something that, that you are obligated to, when you pay that debt, you have to sacrifice to make that payment. Secondly, another nuance of this is that there's a necessary cost to gain something of value. Sometimes it's not about debt. Sometimes it's about gaining something great. In order to achieve good things, we have to often sacrifice to get to where we want to go. We have to give up one thing in order to get a better thing. So you might be paying a debt. You might be giving up something good to get something better. But this sacrifice that we're talking about today that entails the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has to do with this third component, which means that sacrifice often implies a personal loss for the benefit of someone else. A personal loss that affects you sincerely, but you take that loss in order to be a blessing to someone else. Often when we think about the idea of sacrifices in relation to biblical things, our thoughts are immediately drawn to the nation of Israel, to God's chosen people in the days of the Old Testament and to the animal sacrifices that they were instructed to bring to the tabernacle, to the tent of worship, and then later on to the temple, to the house of worship, as an act of, of giving and, and thankfulness to the Lord God. But sacrifice actually goes back a lot farther than the temple. It goes back farther than the tabernacle. Sacrificial gifts were not only a function of the Mosaic covenant. And so if you've got the time, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4 for a minute. Genesis chapter 4, one of the earlier stories in the Bible, and it's speaking of, this is long before the covenant, it's speaking of sacrifice to the Lord God. Pastor Paul last week preached about how the covenant of works didn't begin when Moses came down from Sinai with stone tablets. It was advanced in that point, but the, the covenant of works began with Adam in the garden. So look at chapter 4. This is just after Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden for their sin. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So in those two verses, we cover the span of many, many years. Adam and Eve are now living outside of the garden. They have no longer any connection to the tree of life. They are having a family. They're growing a family. Two sons are born to them. And then those sons grow up to the point of adulthood where they have to take care of themselves. And so one chooses the, the, the role, the task of taking care of animals, this, in this case sheep. 
and the other, Cain, is a, is a tiller of the ground. He is working the soil. Verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. This very early biblical account occurred likely a couple of thousands, a couple of thousand years before Moses brought the law down from Sinai. And at this point, sacrifice has not been explicitly commanded. But these two brothers had a knowledge of their sin. They had an awareness of what their sin had done to their family. It had expelled them from the Garden of Eden. It had caused a debt between them and God. And they recognized that if they showed us, uh, that if they wanted to be near to God, that that debt needed to be paid. So last week, Pastor Paul showed us from Scripture that the covenant of works went back beyond Moses. Sacrifice is not just something that an Israelite needs to be concerned with because sacrifice actually deals with a universal condition. Every culture, every tribe, is infected with this sin that comes from the error of the first man. And that is a reality that we need to grasp still today. We all know that Adam and Eve were the first sinners, but they were not the last sinners. No, every human being who has descended from those two has made the same serious mistake. We have broken the commands of a holy and a perfect God, a God who has graciously granted us life, a God who allows us to live in this wonderful creation that he has spoken into existence. Why is it serious to break God's commands? Because someone who rebels against God has made himself an enemy to God. And while many in the world don't think of themselves that way, they don't think of their breaking of God's law as something that makes them an enemy to God, the scripture would tell us that that is the truth. We cannot be near to God because God is holy and pure, and our rebellion against him has put us outside of his kingdom. We hear often about the love of God in the world, and rightfully so. God is powerfully loving. There is no one more loving than he is. But God is not only a God of love. He is a God of truth. He is a God of justice. And when we break his commands, we mock truth. We mock justice. The love that God has for his creation does not disregard the fact that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, that godly love is acutely aware that the wages of sin is death and is eternal separation from God. That's not a problem that man can solve on his own. In fact, the sacrifice that God the Son will make at the end of his life here on earth is explicitly a sacrifice to overcome the sin of mankind. Returning to Cain and Abel, we see something very important about the two offerings that they brought in worship to the Lord. Even in that early example, one of those offerings was better than the other. So not every offering that we can give to God is of the same quality. The blood sacrifice that Abel offered was more pleasing to God because it came closer to an equivalent. There was blood involved. If the wages of sin, if the consequence of sin is that man must die because he has broken God's law, then the debt that we owe is a life debt, a debt signified by blood. And the only way to cancel that debt is with the shedding of blood. And yet still Abel's sacrifice, even though it involved blood that was more pleasing to God, Abel's sacrifice was still insufficient. There was a need for something greater. And so we fast forward many years to the time just following the Exodus. At this point, the Abrahamic covenant had been established. The tribes had been extended as part of the promise of that Abrahamic covenant. Though God's people had suffered, he had provided for them and was preparing for them a law that would describe in greater detail how his chosen people could interact with him in worshipful and true ways. And so scripture was being given through Moses the prophet. Leviticus, the third book of the Old Testament, was a part of that expansion of the covenant. God's people were taught in Leviticus how to regularly bring offerings to God in worship of him. Sheep, goats, 
doves, even oxen, were to be brought as gifts to the Lord and offered at the tabernacle, a special place for worship. This system of sacrifices, this is important to understand, was instructional. It was not redemptive. It was instructional, but it was not redemptive. For all of the cost, for all of the ceremonial detail that was given to Israel and instructed of them, these animal sacrifices that were brought to the temple year after year, week after week, they didn't wash away the sins of the people. Rather, they taught God's people in a very explicit and memorable way how serious their sin really was. When an animal was offered, the offerer understood that it was his own lifeblood that deserved to be taken away as a penalty for his sin. The animal was, in a sense, a placeholder for that man's life. The animal stood in his spot, and as that animal's life fled from him, as his blood flowed out, the person giving that sacrifice was humbled to see that his sin equaled the penalty of death. It was a humbling and serious moment when someone would bring a sacrifice into the temple of God. These old covenant sacrifices were important, but they served as a shadow of a greater sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make when the time was right. They served as a pattern. They set a standard for us to understand but it was a standard that could only be fulfilled by the hands of God himself. And so these animal sacrifices in the temple were a sign, a very important sign, pointing forward to just exactly what man needed. Those sacrifices, those animals that died in the temple, they were not a waste of time. They were not a waste of life. But they were not the final accomplishment of redemption either. A better sacrifice was needed. But here's the problem. There wasn't one available. You could look the whole world over, every inch of creation that God had, had made, and you would have not found a, a suitable sacrifice. The world and everything in it had been touched by the corruption of Adam's sin. When God created the earth and he placed man in the garden, he gave him dominion over the things that he had created. He gave him authority over the things that he had made. He instructed him to, to rule over it so that when Adam fell, when he became corrupt with sin, everything that he had dominion over became corrupt by extension. The whole of God's creation has been touched by the darkness of our fall. There was nothing in creation that wasn't struggling, struggling under the impact of this sin. and A better sacrifice, therefore, was needed. And that is where Jesus enters into the scene. We must make no mistake about it, friends. Christmas is significant, not just because it brings families together, which is beautiful, not just because it reminds us that it is better to give than to receive, not just because it's a time of generosity and celebration. Christmas is significant because the birth of Jesus Christ, God's Son, marked the unthinkable. It meant that God, loved man, sinful man, so much that he was willing to humble himself and leave the beauty and the comfort and the purity of heaven to come down and take upon himself a human nature, to take his divinity and place it within a body, a human material body, and to live in this corrupt and fallen world that we live in under all of its restrictions, under all of its hardships, so that he might dwell beside us. Christmas represents more than the birth of a king. It re represents the coming of a better sacrifice, a worthy sacrifice, the only sacrifice that qualified to take away the sin that we had built up, the debt that we had ac uh, accumulated for ourselves that rightfully deserves the wrath of a holy and just God. So what exactly makes Jesus the greater sacrifice? It is the task of the writer of the book of Hebrews to explain that in very compelling terms. Remember, the people that he is writing to are not unaware of this greater sacrifice. The Hebrew people to which this letter is addressed, they have drawn near to Jesus. They have heard the gospel preached. They have begun to walk in the pattern of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Some must have truly believed and given their hearts to him. 
But it is true that those who partake of this greater sacrifice are going to inevitably experience hardship in life, difficulties that come with that choice to say, I stand with Jesus. I am not of this world anymore. And these Hebrew believers, many of them, were beginning to feel the weight of their faith. They were beginning to feel the true consequences of saying yes to Christ in a world that is so diametrically opposed to his purity and his truth. And so these Hebrew believers have begun to, to feel persecution. Some of them had no doubt lost their jobs for trusting in Jesus. Some of them saw their families divided over whether Christ was the true Messiah, as the Christians believed, or whether he was not the true Messiah and there was still a Messiah to come, which the Jewish Orthodox folks today still believe. Families divided. Friendships broken. Some of them were likely beaten, assaulted for this belief that they had in Jesus Christ. And so some of these Hebrew brothers and sisters were beginning to waver in their steadfast love for Jesus. They were beginning to see, under the threat of personal harm, they were beginning to see the old covenant as a safer bet for them. They were beginning to consider turning away from faith in Jesus Christ and returning to the sacramental, or sacramental system of the Old Testament covenant. If they were just simply Jewish, they would be more accepted. They would be loved again by their Jewish family. They wouldn't come under such persecution, and so they were wavering in their beliefs. And the one who writes this book of Hebrews is trying to convince them that to turn away from Christ and to turn back to the, the shadows and the signs and, and the types would have been an utter, an utter tragedy because Jesus is in all ways the fulfillment of all things that Judaism points forward to. The author of this book knows that they can't afford to make such a fatal mistake. To reject the Savior is to reject the God who sent that Savior. You cannot say no to the Son and yes to the Father. How could they expect to be righteous before God without the blood of Jesus Christ atoning for their sins. So they must see that Jesus is better in every way. So over the past two sermons that we have preached in the weeks preceding this one, we've tried to give you some focused teaching on Jesus as the better priest. The priest being one who mediates between God and man. Jesus was the better priest in every way, shape, or form. We've talked about how Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant that is built on better promises. But in reality, those two aspects of the Savior are really inseparable from the fact that he is also indeed the better sacrifice. All of these concepts are woven together very tightly. You can't really, you can't really perfectly pull them apart. And so they were going to touch on some of the prior themes while honing in on their relevance to the unique role that Jesus plays as the sacrifice to end every sacrifice. So Hebrews 7.26 is going to be the text which anchors us today, and then we're going to bounce to different parts of Hebrews that shine light on the things that are brought up in this particular text. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's just take a moment and ask the Lord to bless us as we consider his word together and as we really meditate on the meaning of it. God, we thank you for being a God of great instruction. Your wisdom surpasses all wisdom, Father. We know that your scripture tells us that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man, not that there is anything foolish in you, Lord, but we can see that there is nothing we can understand about you that you do not reveal to us. So please, God, open our eyes to these concepts today and help us to recognize the beauty of Christmas, that you would send this, this beloved, precious Son to not only live a perfect life, to not just be an example to us, but to give that life as a sacrifice to defeat our sin and to rise victorious, defeating death in the process. So God, let us... Re 
review these things with humble hearts, Lord. Let us be open to what you have to tell us today, God. And may we allow what is placed in our hearts today by your word to flow out of us the rest of this week as we obey you and honor you with, uh, with our faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage discusses the unique priesthood of Jesus. Unique in the fact that Jesus did not bring a lesser creature to the altar to be sacrificed. All those priests that had come before brought a goat, brought a sheep, brought an ox, but Jesus does not enter into the holiest place with anything but himself. He brought himself as the sacrifice. He is willing to suffer and to die on our behalf because there was no other suitable sacrifice to be found. There are four distinct ideas that we're going to identify in this section, and I'm going to list them in the order that we're going to address them. So on the screen is going to be the passage, and you're going to see how each of these these concepts, these points, uh, are, are represented in this passage. The sacrifice that Jesus makes is superior to the old covenant sacrifices in four distinct ways. It is, it is significant in its scope. It is more significant, it is better in its quality. It is better than the Old Testament sacrifices in its frequency, and it is superior to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant sacrifices also in its duration. The sacrifice that Jesus makes, let's start with the first one, is better in its scope. Look again at verse 27. It says, He has no need like the high priests, meaning the human high priests that came before him, the Jewish high priests that had ministered in the tabernacle and the temple. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Every priest to that point in history who had ever come to the altar came on behalf of himself first and then the people that he was ministering to. We read a good bit of Leviticus uh, 16 a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus as the greater priest. So I'm not going to reread that whole section today. If you want in review, you can read that this week during your devotion times. But Leviticus 16 describes how on the yearly day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that the high priest had the opportunity to enter into the holiest place, the holiest of holies, the place where the throne of God dwelled, a place where no one could enter in except for that high priest one time a year. And before he could enter into that holy place, he had to go through a series of steps that would help him to understand his need for personal redemption. He had to wear a certain type of clothing. He had to go through a special washing where he bathed himself with with particular detail in a certain regimen. He had to give a special offering for himself of a bull and then also a lamb to cover his own sins. And then after all of that work, only after he atoned for himself, then two goats were brought into the holiest of holies and consecrated for the people of Israel for their unconfessed sin. Christ's sinless perfection, the fact that Jesus lived in our sinful world but was never tainted by it, the fact that temptation assailed him and yet it never got hold of him, he never buckled to the temptation to sin, the fact that he never broke the command of God and fulfilled it in the fullest meant that he needed no sacrifice for himself. His sacrifice, the one that he gives, the sacrifice of his body was not for him. It was only for the elect sinners that he was determined to save. It was for us. There's irony in this, right? You might remember in Matthew 3, 13 through 15, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching and he says to Behold, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the book of John. Well, Matthew 3, 13-15 describes about how Jesus comes to him and he says, I want you to baptize me. And what does John say in response to that? He almost refuses, right? It's almost like when Peter is supposed to get his feet washed by the Savior. He says, no way, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. You're above that. John the Baptist with a similar heart says, you should be baptizing me. I'm baptizing for the remission of sin. You have none. Why do you need to be baptized? And yet clearly, Jesus says, this must be done for the sake of the people and for the sake of fulfillment of Scripture. And so he allows himself to be baptized, even though he has no sin. This Jesus who comes forward and offers himself as a sacrifice doesn't need to be cleansed. He needs no special ritual. He is purity walking around with a heartbeat. 
Did this sacrifice that Jesus made of himself, did it save everyone? Sadly, it does not. There are many who will not take Jesus Christ as their Savior. There are many who will reject with a stubborn and hard heart, who will not turn away from their sin, who will not repent. There are many who will end this life and will go into a place of eternal judgment. That is a truth that the Scripture declares loud and clear. The sacrifice that Jesus offered was very limited in its scope. It was effective only for those who would awaken to the belief in Jesus Christ. It was focused on its purpose and focused on its impact. Christ died for his people, and not one of his people will slip through the cracks and end up in the judgment of hell. Not one of them. God will save all who belong to him. Whereas the Old Testament, the Old Covenant priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself and then offer something for others, hoping that it would be enough, Jesus Christ goes into the place of worship, into the holiest of holies, the heavenly holiest of holies, offering himself as the one sacrifice focused on redeeming the people of God. A second observation that we see in this passage, and perhaps the most important one, is that the sacrifice that Jesus makes is superior to the old covenant sacrifices in its quality. In its quality. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Clearly, the writer of Hebrews is making a contrast here between something that is lesser, the weak priests, and one who is so much greater, this priest who is also a son ministering on behalf of the Father. The priests were weak in that they themselves were guilty of sin and in need of atonement. But not only were the mediators of the sacrifices lacking, so too were the sacrifices themselves. So if you'd like, turn to Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment. I will read for you Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8, starting in the second half of that verse, through to verse 14. It says, According to this arrangement, which was referring to the Levitical system of offerings, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, the atonement that was brought by these earthly priests, these animals that that had their blood shed, their atonement was superficial at best. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's talking about how there is a tabernacle that the Israelites worshipped in, which was a copy of a heavenly thing, which was a type and a shadow of the throne room of God in heaven. He says, not through this temporary tent, but in the more perfect tent, in the heavens of heavens, that is not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, there was an external cleansing that happened under the Old Testament law, but it couldn't get down into the heart. It could not redeem the conscience. And so there are two contrasts that are pointed out here in this passage in Hebrews 9. We are told where the sacrifice is going to be offered. That's changed. The greater and more perfect tent of verse 11 points out that Jesus was able to bring the sacrifice of his own life into the heavenly altar. The tabernacle the later and later the temple were earthly representations of that throne room. But take some time and read in the fourth, book of, or fourth chapter of the book of Revelation and you're going to see that the tabernacle was only a faint copy of something so much more grand. This is the true altar that Jesus brings himself to. And he enters into that heavenly place to make a critical sacrifice for us. So the the place of the sacrifice is better in the new covenant. But we also see here that what is being offered has changed. 
Jesus is not bringing an inferior animal, something that doesn't bear the image of God. He's not bringing something that is worth less than a human life, hoping that it can somehow substitute for the more valuable life of a human. No, rather, he is bringing himself. Jesus, authentically human, was a legal equivalent to the lives that he was redeeming. But he was even greater than that. Because in taking on human flesh, Jesus did not forsake his deity. He, ret- he retained his God nature and joined to it a human nature. So not only does a man die on the cross for us, but Emmanuel dies on the cross for us. God in the flesh. He was so much more than just a man. So in offering himself, Jesus offered not only a perfect human, but he offered God in place of us. He suffered on our behalf in the flesh. By contrast, the Old Testament sacrifices were very limited. In fact, they were never commanded as a means of salvation. They were always intended to be a sign pointed forward to this perfect sacrifice that alone could atone for our sin. And so why, if these animals were not necessary, why did the animals have to die? Because death is a language that is universally important to mankind. You've heard phrases like these in our culture, in our vernacular. I'm serious as a heart attack. Why is a heart attack serious? Because if somebody has a heart attack, they're in danger of death, right? That's how serious I am. I'm as serious as death. Or you've heard this phrase, I love you to death, which means I love you more than I could love anything else, right? I love you to death. Or you're not going to do that over my dead body. In other words, you're going to have to kill me to stop that from happening. You see how much we use death in our language? I swear on so-and-so's grave that I didn't do that wrong thing. Death has seriousness to it. There's gravity to death. And as much as our culture tries to make death a cheap thing with all the video games where kids are seeing people constantly slain, we have all these movies where people are just dying left and right, and as long as it's not the main character, then you're okay with it. As much as our, our culture tries to desensitize us to death, life is still sanctified for us. It is still holy. And so when we say things like that, we're evoking the terrifying reality that is the direct result of our sin. We are evoking the power of death. Man's responsibility for failing in the first covenant has led to the death of all kinds of created things. And so to show the gravity of our debt to God, the Old Testament demanded the sacrifice of life. The wages of sin are death. There is no other payment that can satisfy but blood. And that was a lesson that we couldn't afford to miss. The sacrifice that Jesus was prepared to offer was a sacrifice of immeasurably greater quality than the one we see in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to bounce to 1 Peter here for a second. It'll be on the screen for you. 1 Peter 1, 17-19 says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time here, of the exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. To be the greater sacrifice, Christ had to fulfill the law. He had to keep every bit of God's command to mankind so that he could stand before God faultless and free of conscience. In order to be the greater sacrifice, Jesus had to suffer for the sins that we should suffer for. He had experienced scorn and shame. He had experienced torture and humiliation. And in order to be the greater sacrifice, Jesus had allowed himself to die, to be put to death like a criminal, like a wretched sinner, like someone who deserved it. Hanging on a cross, he breathed his last breath and expired, such as the thief situated on either side of him had to die. But he also had to do more than just die. He had to defeat death itself. He had to raise from the grave anew. 7.26 reminds us of the power of this, this sacrifice when it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, who is innocent, who is unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. No other sacrifice could hope to match 
the matchless quality of Jesus Christ. Third observation we can make from Hebrews 7, 26-28 is that the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf is superior to the old covenant sacrifices in its frequency. If you spend any significant energy studying the Hebrew culture, you're going to inevitably come to the understanding of how important their calendar was to the way that they lived out their faith. The book of Leviticus, which we mentioned earlier, which explains the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, is chock full of instructions on how people are to interact with God. And it had date after date and prescribed festival after prescribed festival. Throughout the calendar year, God was showing up in a liturgical way so that they would regularly be worshiping Him and bringing offerings to Him throughout the year. But have you noticed that under the New Covenant, since the coming of Jesus Christ, the better sacrifice, the calendar isn't nearly as dominant in the life of believers. Sure, there are some denominations that they choose to be more liturgical in the way that they approach their worship of God, and some of them have a calendar with specific things that they'll, they'll teach every year on specific days, certain festivals that they'll recognize. But if you look in the New Testament, just take it from a scriptural point of view, the New Testament doesn't command us to fit into a rigid calendar like the Old Testament commanded the Jews to do. We do have a few basic commandments. Jesus says, take up your cross daily in Luke 9.23. So every day we're to deny ourselves, we're to focus on following after the Lord God and to live in the power of his death, burial, and resurrection. We're told to meet weekly with the saints together to worship him. Hebrews 10.24-25, we can't forsake this gathering, which is so important to our strength and our accountability and gives us a place where we can use our gifting and our, our transformed hearts to minister to one another. So we meet weekly like this. And then we are to regularly absorb, uh, observe the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how the table is so important to us that when we come and experience communion together, and we take the bread, which is representative of Jesus, and we take the, the juice that is representative of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we put our minds back on the, the gravity of this sacrifice that we're talking about here today. We're to do that regularly. But it doesn't say exactly how often we're to do it. So those are basically all the time constraints that we have in the New Testament. Christmas and Easter are not even explicitly commanded for us to observe. Did you know that? Something that we do culturally, but the Bible doesn't say, on this day of the new moon, you've got to celebrate this holiday. Why the big change? Because the sacrifice that Jesus made was so far superior to the old covenant sacrifices in terms of the frequency in which it needed to be offered. How much did it have to be offered? Once. Just once. And it was done. Verse 27, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Remember? The Day of Atonement was not the only commanded sacrifice. In Leviticus, we're told there's a number of regular sacrifices that went on throughout the year. And the tabernacle was open every day for those who had committed a particular individual sin and needed to come and offer something to the Lord uh, as an atonement for that sin. In chapter 10, the writer of the book of Hebrews asks the reader, if the animal sacrifices were enough, why would they still need to be offered? He's keying in on the frequency of the old covenant sacrifices compared to the one sacrifice that Jesus made. And so Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered up, since the worshipers have once been cleansed. They would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, he's pointing to those old covenant Laws, those old covenant sacrifices that were commanded through Moses in the law of Sinai and saying, look, they had to be offered over and over again. Why? Because they weren't enough. Because they were inferior. Verse 13, But in these sacrifices there is a, remain, a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here again we speak to the, the quality of the sacrifice. Christ offered himself so much greater than the blood of bulls and sheep. And it is a sacrifice that only needs to be offered one time. Remember, the old covenant sacrifices were instructive. They were not redemptive. They could not accomplish what they pointed forward to. And so again and again, year after year, 
the people had to bring their lambs and their goats, and the high priest would offer up a bull and sheep and goats. But now that Jesus gave himself, there is no longer a need for atonement. The animal sacrifices were a shadow of things to come, whereas Jesus was the substance, the fulfillment of all, all these old covenant types. And that is why when Jesus is completing what he came to do, in his last moments here on earth, he cries out from the cross that it is finished. It is accomplished. There's a great finality to those final words, right? That there is not another sacrifice that needs to be made. We need add nothing to the work that Jesus Christ did because our justification is handled by his blood alone. And then historically, we see the hand of God working when just a few short decades after Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross and rose again, we see the temple which was so holy and so central to the Jewish system of worship. The temple was destroyed in a great riot. And since 70 AD, the Hebrew people who reject Jesus as Messiah have had nowhere to bring these inferior sacrifices. A Jew today who is Orthodox does not offer a lamb or does not dare to offer a sheep because there is nowhere for it to be done. God was showing pointedly that that sacrificial system was laid to rest. Jesus gave his life. That is the only sacrifice that needs to be made. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his own. What this means is the fact that the frequency of the sacrifices doesn't need to happen anymore, that the one sacrifice was made, means that we now have a Sabbath rest in the work that Jesus did. We can fully rest knowing that everything that needed to happen to bring us into the presence of God, to purify us and conquer our sins, has been accomplished on the cross. It's not a tag team event. Jesus did it, he did it by himself. He did it once. We have a communion, don't we, as, as a sacrament, not as a time to be washed again, for that time has all been completed, but as a time to celebrate the finished work of Jesus. Again, the table that we celebrate when we, we come to communion is instructive. It is not redemptive. It doesn't accomplish redemption for us. That was done on the cross with Christ. There is grace given in the bread and the cup, but there is no need for a renewed cleansing. And that is one of the reasons why you might sometimes hear in Christian circles this idea of rededicating one's life. That's not actually a biblical concept or mandate. And sometimes, although I know people who say, I've rededicated my life to Christ, it's almost always well-meaning. We've got to be careful that we don't think that there was somehow a redemption that happened when we originally surrendered to Christ, but then after a time of wandering, we somehow lost our salvation and we need to rededicate again to get it back. That would be re-redemption. We don't need multiples of frequency. We have one redemption, and it is in Christ alone. So if we fall into sin, if we, we see ourselves struggling and drifting from the Lord, and then the Holy Spirit convicts our heart, and shows us that we are truly His and we have no business in His sin, then let us repent passionately to the Lord. Let us tell Him our sin. Let us trust that the work that He did on the cross preemptively washed that sin away for us. But let us not think that we need to come and put Jesus on the cross again because the redemption that He gave to us was once and for all. One last observation. The sacrifice that Jesus makes is superior to the old covenant sacrifices in its duration. Hebrews 7, 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Forever. The work that Christ has done needs no repetition. Its effects will endure till the end of time. Now, the, con the construct that we read here, made perfect, has been confusing to some. They read that and they think, well, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? I want to help you to have some clarity on that today before we end. It does not in any way imply that Jesus was imperfect or that he was somehow lacking or that he needed to be made perfect in order to qualify to be our sacrifice. 
Remember just two verses earlier, the author described Jesus as holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. There's no way that the writer of Hebrews sees Jesus as an unfinished product that needs to be perfected. There is no confusion in the author's mind. Jesus is flawless and has always been so. So this idea of being made perfect is an expression that speaks to the way that Jesus completes all that has been expected and promised in Scripture. So many prophecies had been laid out that pointed forward to this perfect sacrifice that we would need, that would one day be accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus has gone to the cross and suffered for us, as he has been laid to rest for three days, as he has risen again alive on the third day, just as he said he would, then that picture that we have been waiting for is now completed. It is now a perfect picture of our salvation. It's not that Jesus' character was made perfect. It's that all the promises that God had made in Christ were being perfected in the way that he lived them out and made them manifest in his life. And this sacrifice that Jesus made will never fade away. It will never need refreshing. It will never lose its effect. Christian, if salvation is God's work and God's work alone, do we really need to worry about losing what God has paid so great a price to give to us freely? If He is the Savior, then how do we tremble about losing our faith? Will it ever fade away? Will it ever lose its power? Not if it rests on His decision alone. Not if salvation is His decree and His will. We have no need to worry about our salvation being taken away. We have no need to worry about making a mistake that will one day disqualify us because the power of the cross is greater than any sin we could commit. Those who have been made new by the Spirit of God will endure to the end for their once and for all sacrifice will never be disqualified. It will stand forever as a testimony to God's redemptive power over sin. In fact, to believe that salvation can be lost is in some ways an assault on the power of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And it usually is kindled by this idea that we somehow contribute to our own sanctification, what we call synergy. The idea that God does his part, but we have to do our part. The enemy wants that doctrine to flourish because it makes the believers feel like, if I don't do enough, then my salvation will be lost. But when we see the scripture open wide for us, and we see that God has chosen his people from the beginning of time, and that he brings them near to him, and he conquers their sin on their behalf, then we can have great confidence that this salvation that is ours will never be taken away because we did nothing to earn it in the first place. Praise be to God. Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16 says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this security that we have is in no way a license to go out and do whatever we want to do, to live the sinful worldly life that our flesh sometimes pulls us towards. It is not an open door to do that, knowing that we'll just have our sins washed away in the first place. No. May we never have that attitude towards the work that Christ did to save us. Rather, because of this redeeming work, which has secured us as gods forever, let us offer a new kind of sacrifice ourselves. Not a sacrifice of atonement. Not a sacrifice that says, Lord God, here's something good. I hope it pays back for the bad things that I did. But no, let our obedience flow from this heart of gratefulness to the Lord God. It is a sacrifice of praise that we give to him now. Our whole lives, a living sacrifice, grateful for the things that he has done, happy to praise him and to serve him and to obey him, not to earn our place in heaven, but because our place in heaven has been earned by his victory. You see how Merry Christmas can be when you think about not only the advent of Jesus, but the purpose for his coming. When you think about what a greater sacrifice we have in Jesus Christ, if our lives are in his hands, if we receive him as king and surrender to him as our Lord and Savior, do you see the kind of confidence that we can have knowing that we belong to the holiest one in all the universe? Hebrews 12, 22 through 29. We'll end on this. 
says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice that was better than Cain's, but it was not enough. Nor were any of the multitudes of sacrifices offered from the time of Sinai to the time of Christ. But we take great joy and comfort in knowing that the one sacrifice we need has been offered up. Jesus freely gave of himself so that those who would humbly come before him with a repentant heart and receive his grace and become people of the kingdom of God. Let's bow our heads and close in a word of prayer before we sing. I thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. I praise you for your graciousness to us. Help us to understand the power of the cross. I pray, Lord God, that we would think about these things, that the end would be in view, even as we see the beginning of Christ's time here on earth, that as we think about divinity and human form, Lord God, as we see that little baby in the manger, as we read the Christmas story, God, that we would recognize that his time here was so important it was so intentional lord that he came to redeem sinners like us no greater love has ever been bestowed on another that christ would lay down his life for a friend father i pray that there's anyone here that does not yet know you as lord and savior that they would see the beauty of this gift that they would recognize that that kind of a gift can't be found anywhere else but in jesus christ and i pray that they would give their life to you. May today be the day of salvation for them. And for those of us who have known you, Lord God, and have understood that you are our sacrifice, give us a greater depth of appreciation for that. I pray, Lord, that we would be so thankful and excited about this gift that we would receive, that we would talk to everybody that we meet about the coming of Jesus Christ, about his perfect life, and about the sacrifice that he made to set us free from the slave master of sin. God, you are holy, and we exalt you today, thankful for all that you are, and all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen.